Well, you can start opening up in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. As you're going there, I'm going to tell you the story of John Harper. You might not have heard of John Harper before. He was a Scottish evangelist in the early 1900s, a fervent evangelist, constant in his desire to share the gospel. He's most well known for an interesting part of his story. In 1912, he boarded a ship, the Titanic, across the sea in the Titanic. He, in the confines of the ship, did his best to share the gospel with some of his shipmates. And when the Titanic struck the iceberg and began to go down, his zeal became all the more fervent as he did everything he could to bring the gospel to people who were about to perish. The ship was going down. He knew it. Lives were going to be heading into eternity. And so John Harper knew it was his last chance to bring the gospel to as many people as he could. And so he fervently, zealously shared the gospel to the drowning people on the ship. It's said that he was the one that got the musicians to start playing Christian music toward the end to create an environment where people would have their thoughts drawn toward God. One one person who recorded some of the last events said that as he was going to and fro on the deck, he gave up his spot on a lifeboat so that others could get on. He was saying, women and children and unbelievers, get on the boats. He happened to get another life vest when he was in the water. Finally, he was surrounded by others who were drowning alongside him. And the story goes that as he called out to a fellow drowning man, he called out, are you saved, my friend? Are you saved? And the man in the waves cried out back, I'm not saved, I'm not saved. And as the wave brought John Harper up and he could see the man again, he cried out to him again, are you saved? Cast yourself at the feet of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And the man in the waves responded just by saying, I'm not saved, I'm not saved. Well, John Harper went up one more time and yelled again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The man heard it, but waited maybe again to hear from John Harper. But he didn't because that was the last thing John Harper said before he was drowned in the icy waters of the Atlantic. The story doesn't end there, though, because several years later, there was a gathering of survivors who had survived the shipwreck of the Titanic and they had gathered together and they were sharing stories. When one man stood up and he told his story and he finished the story by saying, I am John Harper's last convert. I was the man in the waves that he was crying out to. And right there, as he told me to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, I believed. And the Lord saved me. 
and my life has never been the same. Isn't it amazing how God pursues sinners to save them? I get to interview people as they come into the church, and I get to hear their stories of how God saved them, and it's probably my favorite part of the whole membership process. We have a class, and that's great. I love the class. But then we get to sit down and listen to how the Lord saved someone. And there's, it's funny because in one sense, it's all the same. Someone comes to the recognition of their sin. They, they're convicted over their need of a Savior. Uh, Christ is put forth by someone. Maybe they read it in the, the Word. Maybe it's a, a trusted friend. Maybe it's a family member. And they hear the Gospel, and they repent, and they believe, and they get saved. In one sense, every story is kind of the same, but in another sense, no story is the same. No one is brought to Christ in exactly the same way. It's amazing how God pursues sinners, each individual sinner in its own unique way to get that person, to bring them into the fold, to redeem them. He's very personal in the way He saves He's very individual in dealing with you in the way He draws you into salvation. He's highly personal. Redemption is highly particular. He's concerned, yes, about the church and once He saves someone, He gathers them in a church, but He is very personal and very particular with how He saves His people. It's not just that God accomplished some salvation and then just waited in heaven and was kind of indifferent as to who entered through the gates of salvation. In fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles, I already asked you to turn to Jonah, but you could keep your finger there and go to John chapter 17, where Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer, and He says something that gives insight into the Trinity and how the Father and the Son are working together to accomplish the salvation of God's people. And in verse 1, Jesus had spoken these words. He's lifted up His eyes to heaven and He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh, listen to this, to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. God the Father has in His eternal and infinite mind those whom He has chosen for salvation. And He has given those people to the Son. And the Son was sent to earth to accomplish their salvation. To bring them back into right relationship with God so that there could be reconciliation. And so that every last child of God could be totally and completely redeemed. It's right there in the text. The Father has a people. He gives them to the Son. The Son has authority to grant salvation to them. The Son then goes on His redemptive mission to accomplish that salvation. He goes to the cross not with a vague idea that this might save someone. He doesn't go to the cross to purchase savability. He goes to the cross with names. He goes to the cross with people, persons, individuals. As Paul David Tripp likes to say, Jesus didn't purchase savability. He took names to the cross. Salvation is highly particular and highly personal. And God goes after individuals. I find this to be extremely comforting for Christians. If you're a Christian, 
What this means is that God hasn't just swung up and opened the doors of heaven and just kind of goes, I'm not really concerned who gets in as long as maybe some people get in. He's kind of indifferent. The Son of God knows you by name. (laughs) When He saved you, He saved you. He came for you. His death on the cross was for your sins, your pride, your selfishness. He came for you personally, individually. He doesn't say with ho-hum indifference, well, anyone can come and I don't really care who it is as long as it's available, doors open. What God did when the Father said to Jesus, I have a people for you and you're going to redeem them. Jesus, the the Son, in obedience to His Father, roared from heaven and came down to earth and said, Yes, Father, I will save every last one of them. It's been said, and actually it's a scriptural metaphor, that Satan is a prowling lion seeking those whom he would devour. But I want us also to think about this reality that Jesus is alive. He has His people that the Father has given Him to redeem. And right now through the church, He is going to all nations through the, through the church, through His people and the power of the Spirit to go and accomplish salvation, to seek those people out, to bring them home. Mark already mentioned it in the prayer. Jesus said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And I must have them. There are people who are out here in no church yet. Not redeemed yet. Never heard the gospel yet. And Jesus isn't done with His plan of redemption. And Jesus is prowling around this world through this people that He has gathered to Himself. And He's saving and delivering people. And that's why each time I get to hear a story, I don't just think, wow, This is amazing that you came to this conclusion on your own, that you figured it out by your own good reasoning ability. Jesus went and sought them and brought them to Himself. And this is what we're going to see in Jonah. I want you to turn there. God is in pursuit. We saw that Jonah ran away. We talked about that last week. Jonah is the runaway. And I want us to see God the pursuer. God the hound of heaven, some have said. Pursuing the people for Himself to redeem them, to save them, to grant them redemption and bring them into the fold of God. Let's look at verse 4. We're going to read from verse 4 to verse 16 of Jonah. Jonah ran away. Now verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? 
And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We get to see God in pursuit. And you might think that he's in pursuit of Jonah in this section, that God is interested in bringing Jonah back to himself. Jonah is the one who disobeyed. Jonah is the one who ran away. And God, in these verses, is chasing down Jonah. And you would be right, but you wouldn't be complete in your answer. Is God pursuing Jonah? Yes. But who else is God pursuing here? The sailors had no idea of anything that would happen to them when they set sail from Joppa into the sea that they would encounter the living God. I want you to notice, and we're going to talk about, that God is not merely in pursuit of Jonah. God's in pursuit of the sailors here. The sailors end up, these mariners end up saved. In verse 16, they are having a little worship service on their boat. And I want us to ask this question as we look at the text. What can stop God's purposes to save his people? What can thwart his redemptive plan? Is there anything that can be thrown in the way of God that can get in the way of him conquering the souls of men and bringing them into salvation? Is there anything that can stop him from getting for himself the people he has been called to redeem? Will anything thwart God? Can, can, can anything get in the way of his redemptive purposes? Well, let's start with this question. Can a disobedient messenger thwart God's redemptive purposes? We, we saw this in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, didn't we? Last week, we looked about Jonah's shocking rebellion as he disregards God's word. He decommissions himself from the service of being a prophet. That's what it means when he's saying he's trying to run from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to be a prophet anymore. He wants to get away as far away as he possibly can. He, he's running away. And you might think, well, certainly, if, if this person's running away, if the person that's meant to be the spokesman for God is not going to be the spokesman for God, well, how is God's message going to get to the people? People that God wants to save. God can't possibly accomplish his plans of redemption if no one is willing to raise their hand and say, here, I'll go for you, God. He's got no one to work with, right? He's got no messengers that are going to go and be faithfully proclaiming his message. Of course, we know that that's not going to get in the way of God, is it? 
We already saw that at the end of the story, the sailors get saved, don't they? The mariners are redeemed. It is not even possible that the disobedience of the very spokesmen of God get in the way and thwart God's redemptive purposes. It's not going to get in the way. Think about this. Jonah's failure to obey results in the salvation of these sailors. Now, this is no excuse for your disobedience. obeyed, or let's put it this way, if Jonah had obeyed, he would never have been on that ship. He would have never met these sailors. He would have never encountered this storm. The sailors would never have been afraid to cry out to their gods. Jonah would not be there to tell him about the true God. Jonah's failure results in the salvation of these hardened, weathered sailors. Disobedience folded into the plan of God to accomplish the purpose of God. Amazing. And yet, if you've read your Bible, you'd realize that that's not the only time this happens. Think about these things. Joseph, for example, in the book of Genesis, sold by his brothers, shipped to Egypt, in prison, eventually rises to power, the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and what happens with him? He is able to save his people by providing food for them. And if the sin of the brothers had never happened, he would never have been there. He would have never raised to that position. He would have never saved Israel. Think of Pharaoh. The Exodus story. If Pharaoh is not hard-hearted, and if he just goes, all right, Moses, take the people, no big deal, you guys can leave. What happens? Well, there's no big mighty plagues. There's no miracles. The nations don't hear about the wonders of the exodus from Egypt. And Rahab doesn't get saved. Because you know in Joshua, Rahab only gets saved because she hears about the wonders of the miraculous deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. That only happens because Pharaoh hardens his heart and doesn't want to let Israel go. How about this one? What if Judas doesn't betray Jesus? Jesus doesn't get arrested. Jesus doesn't go to the cross. Jesus doesn't accomplish salvation for the world. Salvation doesn't come. Do you see this? I want us to just fathom this. Let this sink into your heart for a second. God is over everything. All things, not even the disobedience of his people, can thwart his redemptive purposes. Even the disobedience of God's people ends up being folded into God's redemptive story. Let's just take comfort in that, that our failures don't disrupt what God's doing in the world. God will be glorified. He will get His people for Himself. And even human sin and rebellion cannot thwart His plans. Like Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He will not fail to do His good plan in the world. And we cannot, in all our failures, which are many, aren't they? We cannot cause Him to be thwarted. Okay, well, how about this? How about hypocritical messengers? Can they thwart God's plan? Let's, let's see what Jonah does. He, he's obviously running from God. Let's skip up forward and we'll, we'll go back as we go through. We're going to kind of skip around through the section and make observations as we go. Can a hypocritical messenger thwart God's redemptive purpose? Look at verse 8. 
they, they cast the lots, verse 7, and they said to him, tell us, on whose account is this evil has come upon us? What's your occupation? They ask him several questions. Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he says to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, if you're really, <laughs> and from our perspective, reading, the, the, the sailors didn't know any better, but as we're reading, is actually doing we read Jonas declaring I'm a hero and I fear the Lord you just got to realize like this is religious mumbo-jumbo talk this is this is not Jonah standing up for the true God this is this is him being utterly hypocritical isn't it I fear the Lord come on Jonah you're running from the Lord you don't fear the Lord you want nothing to do with the Lord. If you feared the Lord, you would submit to His Word. You're running from the Lord, but here He is, this hypocritical prophet. You notice, when He's asked all these questions, He's asked who's responsible. He's willing to admit that. He's willing to say, yeah, this is all my fault. Um, he doesn't answer the second question. Hey, what's your occupation? What's His occupation? Casually leaving that one out. Well, I was a prophet. Um, I doesn't want, want to mention that. I think that's a little bit hypocritical. He might have to explain himself if he leaves that in. This is him not trying to stand up for the true God. This is him acting like a hypocrite. In fact, the irony is this. He's emphasizing what he feels is the good stuff about him and ignoring that which he feels is the bad stuff about him. He doesn't want to emphasize the important fact of the story that he's actually on the run from God. What he does want to emphasize is that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven. We could mock Jonah for this, couldn't we? And yet we would have to admit that we do this too. We, we all love to do this, don't we? We like to emphasize that which we like about ourselves and ignore the things that we don't like about ourselves. We like to emphasize and promote and even announce our successes. And we like to sweep under the rug our failures. If it's up to us, we would always paint ourselves in the best light. We have to ask ourselves if we're like Jonah here, don't we? Do you hide your failures? Do you always paint the portrait of yourself that emphasizes all your best qualities? Are you always trying to persuade people of how lovable you are? Do you come to church and act like you have it all together? This is really the foundation of all hypocrisy a willingness to talk and emphasize the things that we feel we've done well in ignoring or hiding our failures that emphasize our weakness. Jonah has fallen into hypocrisy. I want you to notice this. His theology is actually just fine. He's right. When he talks about the Lord, the God of heaven, right? God of heaven, transcendent God, made the sea in the dry land. It's true. 
He is the God of the sea. He's the God of the land. He's the Lord of heaven. That is all true. He has very good doctrine. But I want us all to receive this warning this morning. I want you to hear this. Sound doctrine does not necessarily lead to godly living. Oh, we need sound doctrine. We will fight for sound doctrine. But the very presence of sound doctrine does not guarantee a life of obedience. Jonah knows the truth. He's saying it to the sailors here. And yet the distance of his profession and his life is large. I wonder about you. If the distance between your confession of faith, the things you believe, and the way you're actually living is contradictory. Oh, I love a holy God and I want to serve Him in purity. And yet in the quiet moments of your own heart and your mind and your life, you are pursuing things that are not pure. Oh yes, I'm on the mission of the church and I'm here to serve others. In reality, your life is closed off toward anyone. No one really knows you. And you're not interested in really knowing anyone. It is possible for us to have great theology and to have a life that does not match. Just like Jonah, holding very tightly to truths about God in public while in private, running from God. You with good theology can run from God. Beware of the deceptiveness of your own heart. You can run from God while knowing all the right answers. And if you are, I want you to see that it's happening in Jonah and it doesn't turn out well for him. Stop running from God. Confess the discrepancy between what you know to be true and what you're actually doing. Repent. The secret sin, the the hypocrisy in the lives of Christians is destructive, deflating, soul-destroying. And you'll see what it does to Jonah as it puts him down a spiral toward death where he would eventually ask the sailors to cast him into the raging sea. Will the hypocrisy of God's people get in the way? Hypocrisy is a devastating blight on the church. And when it comes into a church, and when hypocrisy is sitting in the pews, and when hypocrisy is in the pulpit, and hypocrisy is characterizing all the relationships of the church, the church just begins to lose any kind of real spiritual power. It's a fraud. And yet, even as Jonah giving us this talk about how much he fears the Lord while he's on the run, God's got a plan in this. Will that stop God from accomplishing His purposes? It won't. Well, how about this? How about if the guy despairs? How about if all the prophets, all the spokesmen, all the messengers, all the evangelists, all the disciple makers become so despairing that they just don't want to serve God anymore? Let's look at what happens to Jonah. This is what happens to him. The men get exceedingly afraid. They hear about Jonah. Um, Verse 11, they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said, verse 12, pick me up, hurl me into the sea. 
then the sea will quiet down for you. Listen, uh, contrary to the Sunday school lessons sometimes and how they teach Jonah, this is not Jonah being heroic. This is not him being, I'll be the sacrificial lamb for you and I'll die in your place. This is not that. This is him asking the sailors to do something he wouldn't do for himself. He is so desperately fleeing from God that he would rather die than obey and yet he doesn't want to do the killing of himself himself. He's asking them to do it. He, he is utterly indifferent to God at this point. He, he doesn't care. Even the fact, we'll talk about this soon, the, the, the ship captain calls on him to pray. Arise, call out to your God. And to this point, Jonah has had nothing to do with God. He hasn't prayed to God. He hasn't called out to God. He, the first words that Jonah speaks are, kill me. Get me in the sea. I'd rather drown. You'd rather die than obey. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He's a despairing messenger of God. I want you to remember, where did this start? He disregarded God's word. <laughs> it's always where it starts. You don't take God's Word seriously. You're flippant with it. You don't care to know what it says. You don't care to submit your life to it. That's the first step toward a life of meaninglessness, purposelessness, and ultimately despair. As the book of James says, sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You want a vivid picture of this? Picture, picture Judas. He just betrayed Jesus, running, weeping, confused. What had he done? Despairing, sad, grieving, but not the true kind of repentant grief. He doesn't know what to do. He's lost. He's confused. He finds a rope. And it started with him wanting something for himself, living a life of selfishness rather than submission to Jesus. Is a despairing prophet going to get in the way of God's redemptive plan? You say, well, you know, somehow God chooses to work through all, all of us. Sometimes we're despairing. Sometimes we're hypocritical. Sometimes we're disobedient. Yeah, yeah, God can, God, God's still amazing. He works through all that stuff. And, and he's, still, he's still able to save. He's still able to accomplish his redemptive purposes. But I want to even get a foretickle to God's redemptive plan here. What about the how about this? Can, can pagan unbelief thwart God's redemptive purposes? Look at verse 5. Let's just recap a little bit. You go back to verse 5. It says, The mariners were afraid. And what did they do in their fear? They each cried out to his God. They are not crying out to the true God. In fact, they're not even monotheistic. They probably all had their own God. They all had different gods that they worshipped. And when life gets hard, they go to those gods. These are idols. They were probably, these mariners were probably entrenched in idolatry. It's possible that they were raised in idolatry. All they had known was idolatry. That the idolatry was so deeply rooted in their thinking that when trials come into their lives, when the storms of life came, they turned to their idols. They're tapping into that which they think can save them. And so they're calling out to their gods. And I think it's possible for us to think, yeah, well, God can work through a donkey. Of course, He's done that before. He can work through me, I guess. 
He can work through the disobedient people that He's called to Himself. He can work even in their hypocrisy. He can work even when they're despairing at times. But think of the opposition of the world. I mean, think of the unbelief out there. Think of the the antagonism to the Christian message that we feel increasingly day by day, it seems like. Think of the worldview of the secularists. Think of the false worship of un unreal, untrue, false gods. And it's possible for the church to throw up its hands and go, that's hopeless. They're not going to turn to God. Look how entrenched they are in their unbelief. Look how dependent they are on their idols. Look at their lives. There's, There's nothing that would cause us to think they're even close to turning to God. Why would they come to God? I wonder if you know someone like that. Maybe someone you love that you've prayed for for many years and you go, there's no way they're coming to God. Might be a family member that you've tried sharing the gospel with and there's just utter indifference or even antagonism and you walk away from a conversation like that and you say, there's no way they're coming to God. And because your hope is lost, you don't pray anymore for them. They're no longer pressing, a pressing concern in your heart. They're no longer written down in the list of people you pray for because you've just given up. You've just assumed, well, they're too far gone. They're, they're too far gone. They're too secular. They're too unbelieving. They're too entrenched in that other religion. They're too indifferent. They're too calloused. They're too, you name it, they're too lost. They can't get saved. And I think if anybody would have been in that category, it would have been these sailors. They're worshiping false gods. They already have a system of religion that they're holding to. They don't believe in monotheism. They don't believe in the true God. They're so far away from worship of the true God. I also wonder if there's anybody in this room that would be more like the sailor. That you come into the church and you say, yeah, I'm not a Christian, don't really intend to be. I know all the stuff. I've heard it all before. I intend to change. I intend to keep living my life the way I want to live my life. If God has His sights set on you, you will not be able to resist Him. He is a roaring lion coming to redeem His people from heaven. What can thwart God's redemptive purposes? What, can, can the disobedience of His people, can the hypocrisy of His people, can, can, can the unbelief of the pagans be such a strong shield that not even the grace of God can break through? Friends, Jesus has sheep that are not of this fold that He says, and I quote John 10.16, I must bring them also. I must. When Jesus says, I must, perk up and pay attention because He will. Nothing will stop Jesus from gathering His people into the fold. And they might be the most unlikely people in the most unlikely of places. Like a gathering of pagan sailors in the middle of a stormy sea with a hypocritical prophet standing in front of them, and God could use even that to bring His people home. Now let's get to the good part. 
Let's turn back and watch how the hound of heaven gathers for himself his people. This is fun. We see the father on the run after these sailors. He wants to redeem them. He's going he's to grab Jonah along the way, but right now he's interested in bringing to himself his sailors. These are his sailors. They had no idea that they were his sailors until the Lord came for them. What's the first thing God does to bring his people? He harnesses creation. Watch this. He harnesses creation. Look at verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there's a mighty tempest in the sea. This is a huge wind that clearly is something that is outside the experience of these seasoned veteran sailors. These, these guys get afraid. Ah, they have, they have experienced storms before. They would experienced waves of the sea that would threaten their ship. But they had experienced nothing like this. And you know that because they're crying out. They're afraid. They're throwing cargo off the ship. They think they need to do something to save themselves. They don't understand at this point that this is a supernatural storm hurled out of heaven into the sea from God Himself. These are the experts that are getting afraid. I remember when, when Nora was born, Ashley's in labor, um, looking at the doctors, taking a little longer than you. The doctors had that look on their face. They're not saying anything, but they got that look on their face like something's wrong. And I remember thinking in those moments, the experts are, are not feeling good about this. Something's wrong. And, and when the experts are feeling that something's wrong, this is a big deal. These sailors are experts. And they are so desperately afraid, they, we have to make the conclusion that this is a storm unlike anything they've seen. They are afraid. Friends, no man or woman is so tough that God can't bring them to their knees this instant. No man is so brave that God can't terrify them. No one... Not the toughest, not the strongest, not the most courageous can face the storms of God. By the whisper of His voice, He calls into existence a storm so as to break them down. And in an instant, these seasoned veteran sailors are crying like children to their false gods. God will harness creation to get His people for Himself. God will bring to your knees. If he needs to. What else will he do? Watch this. He sets up a divine appointment. He's harnessing creation and he's setting up a divine appointment. Look at what's happening next when they go up to him. Look at verse 5. The mariners are afraid. They each cry out to their own gods. They hurled out cargo from the ship to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and he was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You see what's happening here? Imagine yourself as Jonah. The last thing you heard from God was what? Look at verse 2. Arise! Arise! Go to Nineveh. He rises and doesn't go to Nineveh. Falls asleep on a ship. And I imagine this 
Captain, waking up, Jonah shaking him, what do you mean, you sleeper? And what does he say? Arise! Call out to your God. Do you see the irony? The pagan ship captain is saying, Jonah, start praying. It's like the pagan ship captain is calling Jonah to repent. This is the irony of this book. It's all over here. The pagan ship captain says, come on, call out to God. You're running from God. The ship captain doesn't know this. God does. God sets up this appointment and says, come, come to me. God is right there in the midst of this divine appointment where Jonah, waking up, his eyes are groggy, and all of a sudden he's looking at the face of this captain who's saying to him a message that might well be straight from God. Arise, Jonah. Call out to your God. God is calling a pagan sailor to give a message to a running prophet. Both men need the other for God's redemptive plan to work. Do you see how this is going to happen? The pagan captain is going to need Jonah to say who he is so he can hear who the true God is. And Jonah needs to hear from the ship captain, get up and call to your God. It's a divine appointment for both men. God has a plan for both of them. This is why, friends, we believe in divine appointments. Do you believe in divine appointments? This is not to be mystical. It is simply to acknowledge that God in His sovereignty and in His providence arranges the world such that we often cross paths with people that God intends for us to use that relationship for His glory. It might be that God wants to teach me something. It might be that He needs to show me something through this person or that that person is to show me something that I need to give something to them or they need to give something to me that we need to teach one another. We need to know one another. We don't always know the purpose. God knows the purpose. All we know is that God is sovereign and in His providence, He brings people together just as He's doing here. I think it's helpful to look at life this way, to recognize that God is sovereign over the people we cross paths with. Let's take advantage of that. But I want you to see what else God does to bring His redemptive plan to path. This is the third thing He does. He's not only harnessing creation, He's not only setting up divine appointments, watch this, He's guiding even the smallest of details. So, so the captain calls Him to pray, verse 6, Jonah doesn't pray, or at least we don't get any of it, evidence that he does in the text. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. This is the only way the pagans have any idea of gathering uh, the information they need. So they cast lots. This is kind of a way of randomly tossing dice or other some random thing that they would do to try to figure out who the person is. The lot falls, of course, on Jonah. Are we to believe that these lots are cast and it's completely random that they fall on Jonah? Of course not. Every other event in this book is being orchestrated by God. Of course this is as well. God not only hurls the sea, He is paying attention to the toss of the dice so as to single out Jonah, so as to bring the captain and Jonah face to face to have a conversation that they both need to have. Do you realize... There's no such thing as chance in this world. There's no such thing as chance at all. It's an idea. Luck is an idea. It is a word we say, but it is not a reality. There's no such thing as luck. Winning the lottery isn't lucky. 
Every single roll of the dice, every single raffle that's drawn, everything is not governed by chance or luck, whatever that even might be. It's governed by a sovereign God orchestrating all events for his own glory. Keep that in mind next time you're playing Risk. (laughs) And you're tempted to throw the board at your enemy. God orchestrates the smallest of details. Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision, it's every decision is from the Lord. Every flip of the coin, every stoplight, all the slots in Las Vegas, every heads or tails, the orbit of a falling leaf or a shooting star is planned and governed and executed by a sovereign, omnipotent God who is orchestrating big and small events for His own glory. He guides even the smallest details so as to bring Jonah in the ship captain face to face. And that's where Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Verse 9. And that is what God is going to use to save these sailors. But before it does, I want you to see the last thing that God does to accomplish His redemptive plan. He draws the sailors to himself. He draws them. It's not quite there that they repent when they hear about the Lord. In verse 10, after hearing from Jonah, it says they're exceedingly afraid. It doesn't say anything about repentance. It doesn't say anything about worship. They're not there yet. Verse 11, they say, what should we do? Even the pagans are more noble than Jonah. They're not willing to throw him into the sea. They want to row back. They want to try to figure out how to save him. Verse 13 says they they rowed hard to try to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It's a storm, but it's a storm that's going to be the means through which these men are drawn to God. God is behind the storm. God won't stop rocking the boat. God's going to keep rocking the boat until they come to a decision for Him and His glory. And there here it happens. Look at verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, to Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God right there. This is different from any generic God that they have been praying to in the past. Now they're praying to Israel's God. Yahweh, the true God, the creator God. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have gone as it pleased you. They don't have any idea what they are to do. All they're doing is listening to the prophet who had told them to throw him into the sea. So they do that, verse 15. And the sea ceased from its raging. This is another divine miracle that the Lord is using to show His reality to these sailors. It doesn't say that the ship, or sorry, that Jonah, as soon as he was thrown off the ship, that the wind stopped blowing. It says something even more miraculous than that. Because if the wind stopped blowing, then it would take a little while for the waves to stop. The waves would still need to crash a little bit and go and do their thing until finally, after time, 
they would calm down because there'd be no wind. But it doesn't say that. It says that God causes the sea to stop raging. That means in an instant, in a second, these giant, giant waves that are crashing over the boat that are threatening to topple the ship, they stop. You couldn't imagine this. It would have to be a divine miracle. You're in the ship. The waves are so threatening that you fear for your life. And then Jonah hits the sea, begins to sink, and it's calm. And suddenly, it's not that their fear goes away. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. It's not that they're fearing the storm. It's not that they're afraid for their lives. These men now in the calm, when their lives are no more threatened, they fear the Lord. They fear the Lord. They become worshipers of the God of the sea and the earth, the Lord of heaven. They fear Him. Right there, God snatches for Himself a batch of sailors that would have never come to God in any other way. He used a hypocritical, disobedient, despairing prophet to bring to Himself the most unlikely men to get salvation in the most unlikely place hearing the message from the most unlikely messenger, and those men become his children. Friends, God has his people. He has sheep that are not of this fold. They are scattered in every corner of the globe, and he will go get them if they're in the middle of the ocean. And if all he's got to work with are disobedient, despairing, hypocritical people, he will succeed. He will not lose a single one. Someday, you'll get to heaven and you'll shake the hand of that ship captain. And that ship captain will say, I wasn't even looking for him. I wasn't even trying to seek him. I was in a dark, raging sea. I was worshiping false gods. And he came. And he used this, this strange man. You know him. He's sleeping in the storm. And he came and he told me about the living God. And he opened my eyes. He sought me. He saved me. This is how it always works. It is never that we find God. It is never that we figure Him out. He finds us. We only love because He first loves us. We only come to Him because He comes to us. It's always how salvation works. You don't figure it out. You don't reason your way to Him. He comes to you. It's not even the persuasion of a preacher. It's not even the love of a friend. It's not the Gospel witness. Ultimately, those, those things are used. It is ultimately God in pursuit of sinners. He comes for His sinners to redeem them, to put them in His Son, to make them saints, to cleanse them. He finds you. He is the hound of heaven, as some have said. He is 
on the hunt for His people, and nothing will thwart Him. Which is why we sing that song, that that old hymn, Near the Cross, A Trembling Soul, Love and Mercy Found Me. It's the only way it could ever happen. I could have never found Him. If it were up to me, I would have never found mercy. I would have never come to Christ. I was as disobedient as Jonah. I was as lost as these pagans. And God in His amazing mercy has brought the Gospel to me. And even the fact that He brought His Gospel to me, I couldn't have believed it unless He opened my eyes to believe it. Because I was dead set in my own ways. And that is true of every one of us. We would never have found Christ if it were up to us. If you're not a Christian, if you've never repented of your sin to give your life to Jesus Christ, you're here this morning. Maybe perhaps a storm blew you in. Perhaps your life has been a storm or a series of storms or strange event after strange event and you find yourself in a little church on Sunday morning listening to a sermon about a God who will harness His creation to draw His people to Himself. And you're not here, I promise, by coincidence. You're not here because you got lucky or by chance. The sovereign God of earth and sea has organized all your life so that you would stumble your way through these doors and hear about a God who pursues His people. And I want you to hear this. That there is a God in heaven who says, I am God and there is no other. And I have created you for My glory. Before you were born, I formed you and fashioned you in your mother's womb. All your life I've watched you. All your life I've watched over you. And you've turned and gone astray. And you've sinned against me. But God says, I am He who blots out your transgressions. He says, for my own sake, I will not remember your sins anymore. He says, turn to me and be saved. He says, come to me all you who thirst. Come to the waters. Come he who has no money. Come and eat. It's free. Because Jesus has already paid sin's penalty for you. And He has already risen from the dead for sinners. And as the risen Lord of the universe, He's saying, it's done, now come. Repent. Trust in the finished work of Christ. Be redeemed. None of this is chance. It is because God desires that none would perish. It is because God desires that all would be saved. And you hearing this, God is calling you to come to Jesus. He has found you. He's brought you. Don't run. Don't run like Jonah. If you're a Christian, rejoice. 
Rejoice that he sought you out. You didn't deserve it. You couldn't have earned it. You didn't seek it. He wanted you personally. He wanted you as an individual to be his son or to be his daughter. Give glory to God. He was under no obligation to do that. It is free, unmerited, sovereign grace that has accomplished that. Praise Jesus Christ for your salvation. And last, let's remember this. God is not wringing His hands in heaven, hoping some bold men and women step forward so He can do what He wants to do in the world. He will accomplish His purposes with us or without us. He does not need you. He does not need me. The question is not, will He accomplish His purposes of redemption? The question is not, will He gather all His people? What's at stake for us is do we get to be a part of the awesome privilege of being used by God to participate in His plan of redemption? That's at stake for us. Do we get to experience the divine joy of living and serving and spending our lives for the purposes of God? You need to give your life to His purposes. He will do what He will do without you. But your greatest possible decision would be to say, God, for Your glory, though You do not need Me, though I am weak and cannot in myself contribute anything to the kingdom and to the accomplishment of Your purposes, You have chosen to invite me into this. And so, Lord, I come. Use me and have the great experience and joy and privilege of participating with God in His redemption of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He's going to do it either way. Are you going to be involved or not is the question. Let's pray. Lord, we're in awe of You. We're humbled because we see in ourselves a bit of Jonah. And we see in ourselves, even the sailors, and we come to the conclusion that salvation belongs to You. It is Your and Lord, even if we were to work all our lives and to search all our lives, we would have never found it unless you granted it to us. Your children giving glory to you. And let us get on board with your redemptive purposes, knowing that they will not be thwarted, even by our failures. Let us do so humbly and for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.